Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Don't forget the forward slash. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a fabulous uh, chat room, a great group of people there, you know, they're smart, they're funny, um, they always contribute to the conversation, and that's where I always learn something new almost every time. So do come join us if you can, that is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. And of course, if you cannot come in live because you're driving and, you know, the cops don't like that very much, <laughs> then... Um, you can always come back afterwards because we, if there is anything important, any orals or any additional information, we will post that up in the chat room too, so you can go check that out. All right. In this week's Spotlight, I want to address the question, what's in a subliminal program? I was recently asked if all subliminal products are basically the same. The quick answer is absolutely not. Just because a product is labeled as subliminal does not equate to sameness in any way whatsoever. Let me flesh that out some. Years ago, I was asked to assist a company in trouble with an attorney general's office for making claims that the AG wanted substantiated. The threat appeared to exist in the evidence demonstrating efficacy for the use of audio subliminal programs. And since at that time I'd done as much research as anyone, uh, I went ahead and agreed to help this company. To that end, I requested a statement from the audio engineer informing me of his method for mixing the subliminal content. The engineer obliged and informed me in writing that he mixed the verbal messages 50 dB beneath the primary carrier. That would be the music or the water sounds that you typically listen to. Now think about that for a minute. The theoretical limit to most home stereos is around 30 to 40 dB. Anything beneath that is simply non-existent in terms of reproducing the so-called subliminal content through some playback device. I think of this sort of mixing as invisible, and many companies still simply bury the messages so well that they are gone for all intent and purposes. So the first issue when comparing subliminal programs is the technology or method used to accomplish this without losing all or part of the message. You see, another thing that can happen as a result of partially burying messages is that the words can become disengaged from their original meaning. For example, we might process the con in confidence or the sin in sincerely, missing the entire word meaning simply because of the method used to hide the messages. Once again, the first concern is technology. And remember, there's nothing magic about this. If the signal strength is not sufficient to cause a neuron to fire, nothing's going to happen. You're not going to process any information. But then we shift to the subliminal content. Now, some companies tell you that the messages are a secret and that if you know what they are, then they will not work. And this is pure unsupported hogwash. There is no real basis for this argument. As far as I'm concerned, I want to know what messages I'm being programmed to accept, and you should want to know as well. That said, there are those messages that no matter how well-intentioned can defeat your goal or objective from the get-go. Take, for example, messages that are delivered in second person, such as, you are good. When you process subliminal messages, they enter your stream of consciousness, thereby priming your self-talk, your expectation, indeed your belief. 
So let's say you want to build your esteem because you feel inferior and inadequate. And you play the message, you are good. Obviously, when this message enters my self-talk, it validates the fact that you, some other person, is good. And that in no way helps me with my feelings of inadequacy or inferiority. As such, the message must be in first person. I am good. Let me take another example of poor messaging. Let's say that you are a heavy smoker and you want to cut down. Let's say you currently smoke two packs a day or 40 cigarettes. So you create your subliminal affirmation. I find 20 cigarettes a day more than enough for me. That would be reducing your smoking content by 50%. The problem with an affirmation of this nature comes in how the mind tumbles the words, a process known as subconscious cerebration. Think of a lottery drawing on TV with the balls tumbling before one is drawn. Now think of your mind playing with sentences in this same way. Alas, when we tumble this seemingly positive affirmation, we discover that it can easily become, I find more than 20 cigarettes a day enough for me. The design behind the meaning of this affirmation has not just been lost, it's actually been reversed. Now, there are still a number of other matters that should be considered before choosing the subliminal program that you're going to work with. But the answer to today's question should be obvious. No, not all subliminals are alike. I have contributed journal articles and written entire books on this subject, but this should give you enough information to consider before plugging your mind into some unknown subliminal product. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, I was thinking, you know, as you were covering the problem with writing affirmations, I was remembering how you and I first met when you were teaching in England, coincidentally at Imperial College, and you'll get to understand that coincidence very shortly. Um, but yeah, one of the things that you had us do, you know, we all divided up into groups in the in the class, and we all worked on um, our ideas for affirmations for a client that you had. And we put all those affirmations up on the board. And this board was covered. You know, it was a kind of blackboard that just fills the entire wall. Right. And it was absolutely covered. And then you went through and demolished them all. This one doesn't work for this reason. That one doesn't work for that reason. And yeah, it gave me a whole different respect for um, how careful you have to be for what you put into your mind. So I think that was just really important. I, f I found that fascinating. And yeah, you just well, take a I whole think, lot more care. Right? I think one of the other, the major concerns that that I see all the time is that when you're creating a program, you want to profile what you want to be. Yes. So instead of having all these, you know, messages like, you know, I won't do that again, never again will I, you know, what you really need to do is think about the situation. And, and let's say that you, you just have a, you know, a terrible time saving money. Well, someone that is, is penny-wise, someone that really saves money, what, what's their profile? What goes through their mind? What are their thoughts about money? Because that's how you'd want to create the script. You'd want that same kind of content in your mind. You, you, you don't need any more, I waste money on eating out all the time, and you know that kind of thing. What, what you really want is the same kind of mindset that is in that frugal person who is penny-wise and a thrifty saver. So what you have is affirmations like, I enjoy eating at home, rather than, I don't go out anymore. Correct. Or I see, yeah, anyway, that works. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. In our last live show, our guest was David Lowe, and we discussed his metaphysical philosophy and book, Universal Spiritual Philosophy and Practice. Tom wrote, I'm glad you challenged Lowe's use of the shadow as applying to only one of the candidates in this election. Barbara wrote, I hate it when spirituality gets mixed into politics. Who told this man that one candidate was better than another? I doubt it was God. Naomi wrote, this regarding last week's spotlight on the stress this election cycle is causing many. Thanks, Eldon, a true breath of fresh air and the chaos also interesting to step back and see the whole picture. For a moment, I was falling into the manipulation. Thank you for reminding us to focus on the solution. CB commented, 
Eldon must have been both nodding and shaking his head with this week's Democrat Dirty Tricks team planning shills with the intention of provoking violent reactions from Trump's supporters. Just a microcosm of the games being pulled on the public. I find it interesting the information Eldon brings forth that our subconscious is likely making decisions or at least reactions to life situations before our conscious mind. Well, you have that right, CB, nodding and shaking my head at the same time and at both parties, and the games are exactly why I wrote Gotcha. It's past time for all of us to become aware of the manipulations at play. Moving on, Lyle wrote this about my book Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will. The secret of this book is concealed within the title. Eldon pulls back the curtain, awakens our curiosity, and helps us to see all that is hiding in plain sight. Stanley wrote, in the past I have written an article titled Subliminal Audios, A Subliminal Waste of Money. For almost every product on the market, this is true, with one shining exception, InnerTalk. You have solid research behind your product, and your system really works. I use the product myself. I would be proud if I could promote your products on my website. Well, Stanley, we have an affiliate program for just that purpose. Check it out at intertalk.com. And thank you, sir, for your feedback and support. You like that letter, don't you? I do indeed. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, The Improbability Principle. Why coincidences, miracles, and rare events happen every day with our special guest, Professor David Hand. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. David Hand is Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Imperial College in London, (laughs) where he was formerly Professor of Statistics. He served two terms of office as President of the Royal Statistical Society and is currently Chief Scientific Advisor to Winton Capital Management. As a statistician, he is an enthusiast for data and how to extract information and understanding from it and for how probability and chance affects our lives. He's written 29 books, including The Improbability Principle, the book we'll be discussing today. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor David Hand. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's indeed our pleasure. I loved your book. I have to tell you that. I don't know how, you know, I did not expect. My my wife found you, and she told me all about your book. And so I said, okay, well, get, get a copy of the book. Let me look at this book. So we got the book, and, you know, I expected something pretty dry, to tell you the truth. I mean, isn't that how stats and math really go? <laughs> so, you know, I'm expecting to see. Uh, a, it is it is a great, great read. I don't know. You really did a marvelous job at delivering valuable, you know, content, but in a story form full of all these characters. Well, we'll get into that. Anyway, I just wanted you to know I loved your book. Thank you very much indeed. All right. We like to get three things out of the way, Professor. Uh, who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us a little about yourself. I mean, were you raised in a religious family that believed in miracles? And if so, when did you become interested in the ideas that led you to your book? Yeah. No, I wasn't raised in a religious family. But um, I suppose in my teen years, I became very interested in, in science and um, I became intrigued by mathematics and in particular chance and probability. And I became aware that we have very, we often have very poor intuition about chance and probability. And the particular aspects of it that I address in this book are, are aspects we have very poor intuition about, extremely, extremely rare events, unlikely coincidences, that, that sort of thing. Um, we just don't understand. We just don't have a good intuitive grasp of it. Okay, Let, let's do this. Let's start by setting this all up, because I think most of our listeners, they believe in miracles. They don't think there's any such thing as a coincidence. You know, it's serendipitous. Everything happens for a reason. You know, 
so-called rare event. I mean, you know, we're as human beings, we are really wired to look for patterns, and we're really wired, to, you know, to seek out causality connections. So you you open your book with a couple of great stories, one of Anthony Hopkins and one of Wilhelm von Schultz. How about sharing those two stories, and then we'll take it from there. Let's talk about the Anthony Hopkins one. Um, so Anthony Hopkins was uh, to star in a film called The, the Girl from Petrovka. Um, and he traveled down to London to buy a copy of the book so that he could read up the book and you know, decide what sort of what the character that he was to play was like. Um, but he couldn't find a copy of the book, so he gave up after a while, and he was sitting at a tube station, an underground station, waiting for a train to take him home. And he looked at the seat next to him and saw a copy of the book on the, a copy of the book on, on, on the seat next to him. He picked it up, and it turned out to be a copy of the very book he had been looking for, The Girl from Petrovka. Later, um, when he was uh, making the film, he, he met the author, George Pfeiffer, and he told him this story and showed him the book which he had found. Uh, George Pfeiffer um, looked at the book and realized that this particular copy was a copy that he had lent to a friend in London some months before, six months before, and his friend had lost it. And somehow it had travelled through time and space back to, um, to Anthony Hopkins and then to George Pfeiffer. There's a corollary to this as well, which is that um, I, uh, George Pfeiffer heard me being interviewed on the radio about this and um, contacted me and said this is exactly what happened. He, he, and, and then he and I um, met for lunch in New York and swapped copies of the book. I gave him a copy of The Improbability Principle, and he gave me a copy of The Girls from Petrovka. Cool. And, and now, now, most people would hear that story, and they say, what's the chance of that? I mean, goodness gracious. Yes. There had to yes. be a hand of intervention to deliver it. Tell us about Wilhelm von Schultz, and then we'll go. Yeah, this, this is another one. This is... Um, uh, a, a story told uh, by um, the psychoanalyst Carl Jung. Um, right. um, Willem von Schultz tells the story of a mother who, who took a photograph of a small son in the Black Forest, and the mother left the film um, to be developed with, with, the, with the developers. Um, but then war broke out, and she was unable to collect it, so she gave it up for lost. Um, but then, some years later, she bought a film in Frankfurt in order to take some photographs, um, and she discovered when the film was being developed that it had been doubly exposed, and underneath the second set of pictures she had taken um, was a photograph she'd taken of her son two years before. The old film somehow hadn't, the one that she lost, somehow hadn't been developed, but had been put back into, into the entire process and sold again. And so here she is, I mean, what is the chance of that? That's yeah, what everybody yeah, says. Yeah. My wife is sitting here, you know, goosebumps, shaking her head. She's, yeah, and yeah, I'm sure our audience is too. So, when you when you come in, and I want our our listening audience to know, this is just two stories of stories of many many that are in the improbability principle, which is part of what makes this book such a great read. Uh, that together with how you. How you treat it, how you look at this. I mean, so there. Are, but before I get ahead of myself, I mean, goodness, I, I get excited about your your material. Um, we have a lot of writers that have written all sorts of things about serendipity. In fact, there's a great one called yeah. Science and Serendipity um, that argue that these kinds of coincidences aren't really coincidences. They're evidence of something else. Maybe it's a collective mind. We're sharing thoughts. You know, in the Princeton lab, something is happening at the same time. Something is happening in a lab at, uh, in Germany, and, and they're both making the same discovery simultaneously. Um, and, and, and that's evidence of of miracles or evidence of serendipity. It has nothing to do with coincidence. What say you to that? Okay. Uh, basically, I would, say, I would say they're wrong. In, in a sentence, the improbability principle says extremely improbable events are commonplace. What it's saying is you should expect these amazing coincidences to happen. Now, when I put it bluntly like that, it's, 
seems absurd. You know, extremely improbable events surely must be very rare by definition. That's what extremely improbable means. I'm saying they're commonplace. So obviously I'm meaning something slightly different. And what I'm meaning is that, let's just take one example. The improbability principle, in fact, consists of five laws. Let's just take one of them called the, the law of truly large numbers. Basically, this, there's, there's a lot going on in the world. All sorts of events are happening all the time. The, the, the universe is a sort of booming, buzzing confusion. All sorts of events occurring. And some of those, just by chance, must be these sorts of rare events. Um, people searching for a book in London. Um, this sort of thing is going to happen occasionally. And, of course, when it does happen, our attention is drawn to it. If Anthony Hopkins hadn't found a book while sitting on the seat in the underground station, he wouldn't have mentioned it. It's only because it happened that it's the stories he told the story and I'm telling the story and other people have told the story. We pick it up and run with it. So there are two, two things at play in this particular example. One is lots and lots of things going on. And then when something coincidental strikes us, we remember it, we take notice of it. Okay, now let's 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 do this. Define for us what you mean by improbability principle. Yeah, okay. And Where's square it up with the notion of Burrell's law of probability, uh-huh, okay. if you yes, will. Yes, yes. In fact, that's really how I start the book. I talk about Burrell's law. Burrell's law. Burrell was a, an extremely eminent mathematician. He's got lots of mathematical um, ideas and concepts named after him. A very eminent and very clever man. He coined this law, Burrell's law, which basically says that if something is sufficiently improbable, you should regard it as impossible. So, for instance, if something is so improbable that you'd only expect it to happen once in 100 billion years or something, then it would be ludicrous to expect it to happen to you tomorrow. It's going to be so rare, you should regard it as impossible. Um, The universe is 14 billion years old, so if you've got something which is only so rare, so unlikely, that you only expect it to happen once every uh, 100 billion years, you you know, it would be silly going out every day expecting this thing to happen to you. You should regard it as impossible. That's Burrell's law. But the improbability principle, indeed, at first glance, it looks like a a sort of contradiction of that. As I say, in a sentence, it is extremely improbable events are commonplace. What it really means is if you take, I said the, the, the improbability principle consists of five laws. If you take those five laws, any one of them shows you that you should, in fact, expect unlikely coincidences to occur, improbable events to occur. And, and as you've said, the book's full of examples of this kind of thing. So in some sense, it must be right. Okay, there are five laws, and and they're really like threads, if I understand exactly. you correctly. They you know they weave together to to give rise. Let's take those on and see if you know you right. you've already covered. I mean, the first of well, not the first, but one of those five laws yeah. is yeah. the law of truly large numbers. We you you've covered that. Okay. Do you want yes, to flesh please. that out a little more? Yes. Okay. The law of truly large numbers. Um, I often talk about um, lotteries when I'm talking about the improbability principle because everybody's familiar with lotteries and it strips away a lot of the sort of ambiguity and confusion of of, of human words and so on and we can actually focus down on what's happening. Now, here's an example of the law of truly large numbers. Um, Quite a few people, some, some people have won lotteries twice. Now, isn't that extraordinary? I mean, I've never won the lottery once. It seems grossly unfair that people should win it twice. But people have. There was a a woman called Evelyn Marie Adams who who won the lottery twice, for instance. Um, This just seems extraordinary. You know, one is very unlikely to win the lottery once, so therefore incredibly unlikely to win it twice. This is beginning to look like Burrell's law. It ought to be regarded as impossible. And yet it happens. Um, And the reason it happens is a manifestation of the law of truly large numbers. If you think of the number of lotteries there are around the world, the number of days they're drawn week after week, the number of people who play the lottery, who buy multiple tickets perhaps, there are so many opportunities for people to win twice. But it must occur. The chances are very high that it will occur. I I sometimes, in a sentence, say that um, the law of truly large numbers says that if you've got something which has got a tiny probability of occurring, 
but you give it a truly large number of opportunities to occur, then it becomes pretty well certain that it will occur. That's, that's perfectly said. All right. The next law is the law of inevitability. But we've yeah. got a break coming up, and I don't want the computer to kick us out. So when we come back, let's pick it up there, because the law of inevitability really ties very well into how you just defined uh, the law of very large numbers. Okay. We're speaking with Professor David Hand about his work and delightful book, The Improbability Principle. It's a great read. It's a fun read, and you're going to want to read it. Some of the stories are just, you, you shake your head at how is that possible, and then it gets explained. You can learn more about Professor Hand by visiting his website at improbability-principle.com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room today featuring our guest discussing why incredible incredibly unlikely things keep happening. So if you're not in the chat room, now's a great time to get on over there. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Penny Lane, there is a barber showing photographs of every head he's had the pleasure to know. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor David Hand about his work and brilliant book, The Improbability Principle. You can learn more about Professor Hand by visiting his website at improbability-principle.com. Now, we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology, by now you know, is a new interest of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Okay, we just played some of Penny Lane by the Beatles. Why is this music important to you, Professor? And how does it instruct us about who you are? Oh, that's a very good question. I just, I think it was just that... uh... The Beatles were around when I was young, growing up, you know, and one was exposed to these sorts of things. So I think, as with everybody, uh, at a certain age, they hear music, and it sort of has nostalgic attraction. Actually, they say the magic age is 14, and it worked for yeah, me when I read that research, right. you know. <laughs> so, okay. All right. 
You were about to tell us about the law of inevitability. Okay, yeah. The, the law of inevitability, one way of putting it, is just to say something must happen. This is a very straightforward law. Um, let me give you a couple of examples of it. Um, the first example, a straightforward one, if I toss a coin, it's going to come up heads or tails, or, or maybe it will just by chance land on its edge or fall down a crack between floorboards or something. I'm going to call those sorts of outcomes other. So that means there are three possibilities, heads, tails, or other. And one of those has to happen. It is inevitable that one of those three possible outcomes must happen. That's the law of inevitability. That's a pretty trivial example, an obvious example. Here's a much more interesting one. Uh, any given lottery has uh, a finite number of tickets. The UK National Lottery, you have to uh, choose six numbers out of 59 possible numbers, for instance, standard form for a lottery. Um, on the 15th of February, 1992, the Virginia State Lottery um, jackpot had rolled over to $27 million. The, that lottery was a 644 lottery. You had to choose six numbers out of 44 numbers, which, if you do the math, shows that there are only 7 million possible distinct lottery tickets. You can see where I'm going with this. You can, If you've got a spare $7 million around, you could buy all of those lottery tickets and the law of inevitability. One of them is certain to come up. So that would guarantee the law of inevitability that you would hold the jackpot winning ticket and stand to win at least a share of the 27 million jackpot. That would be guaranteed. Um, in fact, people did this. A group called the International Lotto Fund got together a consortium of 2,500 investors from around the world. Each of them paid $2,800 to be part of this consortium. And um, that means they stood a chance of winning $10,800 if they got the 27 million jackpot, which they were guaranteed to hold the winning ticket for. I, I, sh I sh should comment here that... Um, there are certain challenges with this. One is simply the, the logistics. Between one draw of the lottery and the next one, you, you've got to round, run around very fast buying 7 million tickets. So they put together a team of people doing this. And at this point, I, I'd like to say that the amount of effort and organization going into this means it might well be easier just to get a job. Anyway, um, <laughs> there are also other risks. You're guaranteed to hold the jackpot-winning ticket but that doesn't mean that other people might not also, just by chance, buy the jackpot-winning ticket. So you might have to share the $27 million and, you know, share it with four people, and you're not making you're making hardly any money at all. So, um, and then there, there was a legal challenge, but, but in the end, the lottery operators uh, uh, let them get away with it. And I have to say that this isn't the that lottery, the, the Virginia State Lottery, it's not the only time that's been done. It's been done on the Irish National Lottery, the Massachusetts Cash Windfall. Um, and, in fact, the French writer Voltaire based his initial fortune on an exact, exactly similar sort of operation. Have you ever been involved, uh, you know, in providing the data that would be necessary for something like that? I mean, I know you work for a financial institution yeah, no, currently, <laughs> and so a lot of what you're going to be doing. So, But have you? Not, not that sort of thing, no. I, I think the, the numbers are too big and the, the chances are too small. You know. In fact, the, the Virginia, um, the, the International Lotto Fund I, example I just told you about, mm -hmm. the guarantee winning, the, holding the jackpot winning ticket, they had to buy 7 million tickets. And they didn't actually manage to do it. They only managed to buy 5 million of them. I have this sort of mental picture of them tipping sackfuls of lottery num lottery tickets onto the floor, going through them one at a time, no, this isn't it, this isn't it, this isn't it, <laughs> through five million of them. <laughs> In fact, they did hold the winning ticket, but they must have had a lot of very short nails by the time they'd finished. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so we had two of them down, and, and they, I, 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 let's flesh the picture even more. You, your next law that I want you to discuss is the law of selection. And I want our audience to remember that each of these laws are threads that tie together, that give rise to why what we think of as improbable really isn't. Okay. The law of selection. Um, one way of putting this is that you can make things as likely as you want if you choose after the event. And I'll give you two examples again. First, a uh, a straightforward one, and then a, 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 a real one. Um, the straightforward one, the sort of hypothetical one, imagine
imagine you're walking along a country lane and you come across a barn. This will be a familiar sort of story. You look at the barn, and on the side of the barn, you see a lot of painted targets. And in the centre of the target, right in the bullseye, you see arrows. And you think, wow, this guy's a really hot archer. And then you carry on walking along the country lane, and you turn your head back and look at the other side of the barn, and you see a lot of arrows in the side of the barn, and a man with a pot of paint painting targets round the arrows. He can make the probability as high as he wants. He can make it certain that he will get his arrows in the targets, right in the centre of the targets, if he chooses after the fact. Now, that's a hypothetical example showing you the law of selection, how you can make things as likely as you want if you choose yeah, we after call the, that the We call that one the Texas sharpshooter ah, fallacy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to tell you a story um, analogous to that, a true story which happened 100 years ago. 100 okay. years ago, the First World War was raging, and aeroplanes were being used for the first time in war, and they were trying to work out how, how to use them. And one of the weapons they were uh, experimenting with was a bundle of pencil-sized metal darts that they would drop on the enemy troops, fly overhead and drop them on the enemy troops. And they wanted to know how this weapon behaved, how the darts would disperse as they fell. So they carried out a number of experiments. They flew over fields, they dropped the bundle of pencil-sized metal darts, and then they went around putting squares of paper over where the darts had fallen so they could see how they spread out. They'd done this for one of the experiments when a cavalry officer rode up and asked them what they were doing. When he was told that there was a dart in the centre of each of the uh, squares of paper, he said, my goodness, I didn't think you could be that accurate from an aeroplane. Choosing the data after the event, Interesting, interesting, interesting. Wow. All right. The law of the probability lever, Professor. Okay. One way of putting this is that slight changes can make highly improbable events almost certain. Um, so here's a simple example. Um, the probability of being killed by a lightning strike worldwide is about 1 in 300,000. But the probability of being killed by a lightning strike in America is about one in three million in any given year. Um, and the obvious question is why? Why is it so much safer uh, to live in America? And the answer is the circumstances, the conditions are slightly different. Slight changes to the conditions make a dramatic impact on the probability of changing it by a factor of 10. And of course, the conditions are simply that American buildings are strong and they have lightning conductors. They're, they're built to cope with um, these sorts of things. People spend more time in offices and less time out in the fields and, uh, and open. So those slight differences uh, have this dramatic effect on, on, on probabilities. And I can give you, uh, uh, let me give you another example, a tragic example. Um, there was a woman um, called Sally Clark um, who uh, had two of her children, unfortunately, died of cock death. Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. I'm not sure uh -huh. what it's called in America. Yeah, um, and um, she was uh, accused of murder. Uh, she was tried and she was found guilty. And uh, the evidence, uh, the, one of the compelling pieces of evidence, was provided by a medical doctor, not a statistician, not an expert in probability, a medical doctor who basically said the chance of one of these unfortunate deaths is very small, so the chance of two of them is vanishingly small, Burrell's law, if you like, so there must be some other explanation. It must be murder, basically, and she was found guilty and, and spent time in prison. Um, unfortunately, the medical evidence, that those statistics that I've just given you, um, were, were incorrect. Um, the basic assumption that the medical doctor had made was that the two events were independent, and in fact, if you look at the data, that's not the case. If you've had one child die of sudden infant death syndrome, cot death, then you're more likely to have another one die of the right. same. He didn't take into that, that into account. And that slight difference has a dramatic effect on the, prob the probabilities. It makes it more likely that they would have been unfortunate accidents rather than a deliberate murder. It's a particularly tragic case because after Sally Clark was, after the, the uh, verdict was overturned and she was released from prison, um, she never recovered, and, and she basically committed suicide not long afterwards. That's horrible. But, okay. All right. We have the last one. 
the law of near enough. Okay. The law of near enough basically says, or one way of putting it, is events which are sufficiently similar are regarded as identical. So here's an example. Um, in the UK, a man in 1986, a man named Bill Shaw was in a train crash, um, and some people died, 13 people died in that train crash. Fifteen years later, his wife, Ginny Shaw, was also in a train crash, a fatal, another fatal train crash, and ten people died. Now, I would like to say at this point that rail travel in the UK is incredibly safe. About, there are about 0.1 fatalities per billion passenger miles. It's the safest way of travelling. Um, but the point about this story is, what an amazing coincidence that this man and his wife should both have survived fatal train crashes, given that they're so un unlikely to occur. But you will notice that they occurred 15 years apart. They didn't occur on the same day or the same week or even in the same year. And had they occurred 30 years apart, I would still be saying, what an amazing coincidence. So I'm saying I'm expanding the range of possibilities. This is the law of near enough events which are sufficiently similar regarded as identical. And indeed, um, it wasn't Bill, Bill Shaw, who was in both, both train crashes. It was Bill in one and his wife in the other. And had it been Bill in one and his cousin or nephew or brother or workmate or whatever in the other, I'd still be saying, what an amazing coincidence. So events which are sufficiently similar are regarded as identical. Okay. Now, when you weave all of these together and then you look at things, um, the stories that you've, you've shared with us, for that matter, uh, where it appears it is just astronomically beyond probability that uh, such a thing, a coincidence, would occur, and you say, but it really isn't. That doesn't entirely dismiss the proposition of miracles, does it, or does it? I think you have to define exactly what you mean by miracles, but but I right. would say that these these um, highly improbable events should be expected. The law of truly large numbers. There are so many things going on, and these other laws come into play. So you should expect these sorts of things to happen. Indeed, when I give um, talks about the improbability, live talks about the improbability principle. I usually get people in the audience saying afterwards, do you know the following happened to me? I was talking about, I was thinking about somebody and the next minute they rang and it was, it was them on the phone. Um, these, these sorts of things. Most people have experienced these kinds of events just because there are so many uh, things going on. Can I, can I just add something, though? Um, people sometimes say to me, okay, so you can explain these things, at least to your own satisfaction, mathematically does that mean that they uh there's nothing exciting in them anymore and i say on the contrary um the magic doesn't go away the sense of wonder is still there and the analogy i usually give is the rainbow when you walk along and you see a rainbow beautiful colors arching across the sky you think wow isn't that amazing and if you understand what caused that the way light has reflected and refracted around inside raindrops and bounced into your eye. That doesn't take the magic away. In fact, it probably makes it even more magical, the fact that this amazingly complex and subtle physical sort of phenomenon can be produced. And it's exactly the same with the uh, improbability principle. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sort of clearly very uh, alert to these sorts of things now, and a number of coincidences have happened to me. And I don't think, oh, well, you obviously to be expected, nothing interesting in that. I still think, wow, isn't that exciting? All right, I have a philosophical question for you. I yes. set it up, though. Uh, this is a true story. I'm, I'm not sure about the numbers because I'm pulling them off my head from, I don't yeah. know, 15 years ago. But there was a church in the Midwest in the United States with a choral group that... Uh, practiced every Saturday night. And on a given Saturday night, and, and again, numbers, it could be 12, could be 14, could be 20. On yeah. a given Saturday night that they were supposed to meet at 7 o'clock, for some reason different to every one of them, they didn't go to the church. They didn't show up to that practice. And at it precisely 7 o'clock... The building caught fire. The furnace exploded. Had they been there, everyone would have been killed. 
Okay. Wow. Now, yeah. All right. So now I can understand how we apply or how the brilliance of the improbability principle with regard to perhaps, you know, assembling reasons that these people didn't attend from a mathematical perspective. But how, but how about what what what's behind why each one of them made a different choice? Yeah, yeah. Do, okay. I mean, now we're talking about consciousness, and and I and I guess you know I'm kind of looking at does does the improbability factor preclude the possibility that they're being nudged by some other this that or the other? Could be the collective unconscious of a Jung. It could be uh, the creator, whatever. It, it doesn't. I mean, my question to you is, does it preclude that possibility? Right. I would say, no, it doesn't preclude it, but you don't have to allow for that possibility. You can explain it without that possibility. It doesn't prove that it's not that, but it's not necessary to explain the sort of phenomenon you've described. Okay. Now... Let's do this. You spent some time talking about multiverses, and that oh, kind please, of threw yeah. me. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for you to get down that tunnel. Uh, you, should, you should tell people that that's towards the end of the book. <laughs> yes. Okay. So you share with us your ideas about probability and multiverses. Okay. Uh, this notion of multiverses is, is the sort of thing that um, physicists have come up with to explain um, uh, various sort of observed phenomena and so on. And basically, it it says that at each time that, if you like, a random event occurs, the universe splits and different universes follow each of the possible outcomes. So you flip a coin, it could come up heads or tails, that in one of these universes universes it's come up heads and in another one it's come up tails. And every time a random event occurs, and, you know, random events are occurring with sort of astronomical frequency, just um, quantum fluctuations and so on, um, every time that occurs, a new universe um, um, splits off. Can I it, uh, just make a comment about your, your Choral Society meeting? Um, oh, please. I thought this was very interesting because people have a, a sort of tendency to describe themselves as lucky um, when they've escaped a, a disaster. So, for instance, um, you, uh, the building you're in collapses and you emerge from it. Nothing hits you. You say, I was so lucky. You know, the beams fell and none of them hit me. But it's very interesting because one could equally and perhaps even more legitimately say, I was very unlucky. I, I was in the building which fell down. Do, do you see what I mean? People have this I tendency. Do, and yeah. I think... The Coral Society example is a bit like that. They're describing themselves as lucky because they didn't go that evening. But it's extremely unlucky that the building exploded. Yes. Yes, indeed. And it, 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 Let me... Are people lucky? Do you believe in luck? Ah, ah, ah. Um, I think you can give yourself more chance to experience beneficial events. So... I think chance exists, randomness exists, but luck is how we interpret the outcome. It's the human perceptions on top of chance events. And perhaps I should say more generally, I've talked about the the five mathematical laws which constitute the core thread of the improbability principle. But on top of that, you do have human perceptions, human intuitions, human understandings. So the one I mentioned at the beginning, when, when something unlikely occurs to someone, they remember it. They forget all the other things which have occurred. Why should they remember them? Nothing notable about them. But the one which was an extraordinary coincidence, they remember. So they're pulling that out. But that's an aspect of the way the human mind interprets these things, not of the mathematics. And that, the human mind, sits on top of these mathematical laws. Okay, I have to ask you, because when I was reading your book, I thought about things that had happened to me, and I thought, well, that's a different way to look at it, because I was thinking that, okay, have you had events in your life that... Oh, yeah. Uh, Let me me give you some examples. Funnily enough, when my book came out, just a a week or two after my book came came out, I was contacted by a writer, a fiction writer, a, a novelist, called John Ironmonger. 
he said he had just had a book published called Coincidence. <laughs> this book, this novel, was about uh, um, an academic, a professor who lived in London, worked at London University, as I do, and was an expert on coincidences. Um, the romantic attachment also worked at the University of London, as does my wife. And the protagonist's birthday was the 30th of June, which is mine. He swore he'd never heard of me, and he wasn't trying to, to, to steal my life. It was just an amazing coincidence. Of course, I rushed out to buy a coffee of the book to find out what happened next. But um, just an amazing coincidence. So there's one example. Um, another example is that um, I, um, in 2012, I attended the Royal Statistical Society conference. I go to their conference, to the conference quite often. And um, I went up to the reception desk to register, and I said, my name's David Hand. So the receptionist looked at her screen and said, but you've already registered. I said, no, I haven't. She looked at her screen again and said, oh, I see what the problem is. There are two David Hands with us this week. And I, again, you know, was bowled over. I then went away and did the math and thought, well, you know, it's quite likely that I will meet another David Hand during the course of my life. But that didn't make it any the less amazing to me. Jeez. All right, Professor Han, in about 20 seconds, tell our audience how they can learn more about you, get your book. Okay, they can go onto the website, which you described at the beginning, or indeed they could get it on on Amazon. I say that again, I'm sorry? Uh, they, they, they could go onto the website to... to the, the, the Improbability, the yeah. Okay. Improbability-principle.com. That's it? Thank you. Yes. All right. Thank you, Professor, for your work and for your willingness to share it with us. We've run out of time. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed our show and look forward to you joining us again next week. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com. <laughs>